I thought that I would start out here by just sharing a little bit of something that might help you to understand who I am and where I'm coming from. And this may sound uh, a little bit odd at first, but the thing that I wanted to share with you is the, the first and guiding core value of the church where I pastor, Christ Restoration Church. Uh, you were probably hoping I would share some story about Jason or something like that, but this is his birthday week, so I'm gonna just cut him some slack. Okay, so, um, so yeah, this is uh, core value number one. Uh, I will just say that um, I, I failed to pass this along uh, as a slide, um, so that's on me, but uh, if you'll just listen closely as I read this, and I would encourage you to do that, to just really listen closely to this. This is very important. At Christ Restoration Church, we believe that Christ changes everything. In other words, we value the centrality and sufficiency of the gospel. The gospel is nothing more and nothing less than the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we desire him to be preeminent in all that we do. We believe that the gospel is central to the whole of the Christian life, whether it is our justification or our sanctification, we believe that it is central to how we do ministry, for we believe that the grace to come to Christ and the grace to grow in Christ are found in it alone. Certainly, we will seek to do all that we do with excellence. However, we refuse to give room to the myth that our church is in the business of making the gospel effective. Rather, we are committed to the exact opposite. The church does not make the gospel effective, but the gospel makes the church effective. The gospel alone is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. And that right there, for me, um, I'll say, I, I think that that provides perhaps just like a little bit of a glimpse of why it was that I chose to enter into pastoral ministry in the face of lots of fears and lots of apprehensions because it changed me, it gave me courage, it continues to do that. It continues to change me, it continues to give me courage. I need it right now, up here with, with, with y'all. Um, I need this, and it's been the thing, I'll say, that for our church, Christ Restoration Church, this, this is the thing that we have been trying to build our church upon. It's been a guiding light in so many ways. Now, um, from what I know of Jason, from what I know of Vicki and Kenny and Amy, and from what I know of those of you who I've met, and from what I know of just BGC in general, I would just have to guess that that core value that I read for you probably resonates with a lot of you. As I was reading, you maybe were nodding your head. Maybe you were thinking to yourself, you know, maybe I like this guy Doug after all. And if so, if you feel the same way about the gospel that we do at Christ Restoration Church, then I want to ask you a troubling question, actually. A troubling question. Why is it if this gospel, this good message of God's grace and his mercy to us, if it's so precious and so important to us, um, if it's so powerful, if it's so transformative, as we tend to say that it is, then why do we struggle at times, maybe even often, to 
Hold on to it. To keep it, you heard that word central over and over again in that core value. Why do we struggle to keep it central in our own lives? Why is that? And of course, I'm assuming something about you when I say that. I'm assuming that, that you're maybe like me. I'm assuming that you're maybe like the church in Galatia that Paul wrote a letter to, and we're going to be looking at that this morning. I'm assuming that maybe you're like the Apostle Peter who makes an appearance in this, this, this letter from Paul, that you struggle also to hold on to this most precious thing, this gospel, to persistently and fully believe it, to perpetually embrace it, to somehow practice it. Am I wrong to assume that? I, maybe I am. I don't know. I assume I'm not, though. So again, why would that be? Why do we struggle with this? And I'm asking you these questions because I think that these are the kinds of questions that Paul was asking of the church in Galatia so many years ago. Um, Some of the folks in Galatia had radically embraced the gospel enthusiastically, and then suddenly, somewhere along the way, somehow, they lost track of it. They, They got out of, you could say, they got out of alignment with the gospel. And throughout this letter, Paul is is passionately attempting to help these people to course correct. And I'll tell you what his approach was. I'm just going to go ahead and just put my cards right on the table. Um, This, I would say, is, is kind of this sermon in a nutshell. Paul attempts to bring them back in alignment with the gospel. How? How does he do it? What's his, his approach? What's his tactic? He attempts to bring them back to the gospel by bringing them back to the gospel. Yet again, by bringing them to the heat, by bringing them to the light of the gospel yet again. You see, the gospel isn't a slippery message. You understand? There's nothing inherently wrong with the gospel. Rather, it's us. Okay? Do you know this about yourself? That we're, we're a bunch of grease monkeys. We've got greasy hands. We struggle to hold on to this dear message. And the only remedy for our wayward response to this gospel is, you guessed it, more of the same. As the Protestant reformer Martin Luther once said, and this was a man who was deeply, deeply impacted by this letter to the, to the Galatians, is he, he put it like this, every week I preach justification by faith, the gospel, every week I preach justification by faith to my people because every week they forget it. And he would have included himself in that sentence. Okay? In another place he, he talked about the need for us to have the gospel beat into our heads. It's kind of a crude way of putting it, but to have it beat into our thick skulls because we struggle to hold on to it. We're quick to forget it. We're quick to move on from it, to move on to other things. So how might this happen? This is a good question to ask. How might this happen? Functionally, what might be happening when we lose track of the gospel, when we get out of alignment with it, like the Galatians apparently did? And then in response to that, how does the gospel help us to get back on track, to get back in alignment? 
So these are just some questions that we could try to sort through together this morning. So please allow me to to read our passage at this point. We're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 2, beginning at verse 20, and we're going to go through to chapter 3, verse 6. So here it is for us. Paul speaking, writing, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your very eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. This ends the reading of God's word. Now, in case you didn't pick up on on what's going on here, Paul is pretty upset. I mean, that's putting it very lightly, okay? In this tension, it runs through the whole letter, but I would say that this particular moment right here, it seems to be like a a peak moment of frustration for Paul. And so, what's up with that? I mean, he he calls these folks fools. Twice he does this. I mean, two centuries later, this word fool, it still carries the same kind of like cutting, um, defining uh, reality, right? I mean, who wants to be called a fool? I don't want to be called a fool. And I think that there's actually a lot that is going on here. In other words, Paul, I don't believe he's just being flippant. You know, I don't think he's just kind of rattling off here. He chose his words very carefully. He knew that these provocative words would color everything else that he had to say, and he wanted it that way. And so we're going to look to these foolish words, if I could call them. We're going to look to them to be a guiding light for us as we work through this passage. So I'm going to provide a a bit of an outline for you. Uh, Three things. If you're taking notes, you might want to write these down. Uh, First off, we're going to consider the essence of a fool. What sorts of ideas and characteristics might Paul have had in his mind when he said this? The essence of a fool. Secondly, we'll consider a foolish foolish exchange. So if, if Paul is on point with his critiques here, what was going on with the Galatians? What happened How did they act foolishly? A foolish exchange. Then lastly, we'll consider the foolishness of the gospel. How does the gospel defy and mystify our own sense of wisdom? How does it do that? How does it run contrary to just the normative ways, natural ways that we tend to think? So one more time on those. The essence of a fool, a foolish exchange, and then the foolishness of the gospel. So to begin with, and I'm going to try to be brief on this first point, the essence of a fool. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Are you so foolish, he asks them. Again, this is very provocative language on the 
part of Paul, very spicy thing to say to somebody. And you might even say that this was a, this is a risky thing for Paul to say to them. And yet again, he says it twice. And so what is Paul doing here? Is, is he trying to like, is he trying to run these guys off? Is he just merely trying to insult them, hurt them, embarrass them? I don't really think that that's what's going on here. I, I mean, is he being provocative? Yes, of course he is. Is he being corrective? Yes, of course he is. But even more so, I believe that Paul, what he's doing here is he's attempting to be instructive. He wants to teach them, to impart wisdom to them. We have to remember that like Paul was responsible for helping to plant these churches. He cared about these people. He loved them. He wanted to assist them. Right? The other thing that we need to remember about Paul is that he was a learned Jewish man. He'd been around the block. And so I think that we can assume that Paul, when he's using these words, he would have been thinking about these words in very proverbial sorts of ways. He would have been having you know, the Proverbs of King Solomon in mind when he, did, when he was saying these things. So how does the book of Proverbs, we might ask, how does that in- inform us about what Paul might have had in mind when he called these people fools? All right? Well, the book of Proverbs, in case you don't know, it's a, it's a book of contrasts. It's a book of juxtapositions. It's meant to impart wisdom. And generally speaking, how it works is it perpetually sets two things side by side. It sets the wise person beside the foolish person. And the, the contrast between those, between those two things teaches us about the other. You know, like if you want to know um, what it looks like to act wisely in a situation, look at how the fool's acting. If you want to know um, how to, what, to be foolish, look at the wise person, and so on and so forth, vice versa. But if you, know, if you want to understand some of the biggest differences, though, between a wise person and a foolish person, look no further than the introduction to Proverbs. If you haven't read this, I would encourage you to do that. Here are just some cliff notes on this. It begins with several lines indicating that the biggest differences between wise people and fools have to do with our ears. With our ears. Unlike fools, wise people listen. They are teachable. They don't assume that they've just got it all sorted out. They receive instruction, and in turn they grow in wisdom. And then in verse 7 of Proverbs chapter 1, before King Solomon begins to impart all of his wise sayings, um, we get, I would say, the essence of a wise person. In other words, what is the, what is the most critical difference between a truly wise person and a foolish person? Verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So we're talking about reverence. To be foolish is to be thoughtless, it's to be mindless, but to have the fear of the Lord means that you have this awe-inspiring mindfulness of God. And that's the doorway. That's the way in to wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So to be foolish above all else is to be thoughtless, to not be mindful concerning God, to not listen to him and learn from him, Here's another way of putting it. When we don't take time, when we don't take time to listen to and to learn about who God is and what he's done, it makes fools out of us. It makes fools out of us. And here's the hardest part about this. 
This is one of the things that we can learn from the Galatians here, I think. It doesn't take long for us to play the fool. It doesn't take long. There's this Canadian band called uh, Bad, Bad, Not Good. You got, anybody ever heard of them? Okay. They're, um, they're this like weird, jazzy, psychedelic, hip-hop-ish band. It's kind of a strange mixture. Bad, Bad, Not Good. Check them out. Our short-term memory in terms of the gospel is guess what? It's bad, bad, not good. It's terrible. Again, we're a bunch of grease monkeys. We have greasy hands. And so this work of listening and learning, being teachable, not assuming that we've got everything sorted out as it relates to the gospel, gladly receiving instruction concerning the gospel, we have to keep at it. We have to keep receiving it. We have to really sit and just revel in it being unpacked for us. When we don't do that, when we say, I'm good, I'm good, it makes fools out of us, okay? But how? This, this moves us into our second point. But how? Um, what does that tend to look like? And Paul seems to have his finger on the pulse of this. He understands at least one very primary way that the gospel tends to slip right through our greasy little fingers. And this puts us into our second point, a foolish exchange. Um, what we've got here in chapter 3, I think it's fair to, to think of this as like a gospel interrogation. He's interrogating these people. He begins to drill them with some very spicy questions. In fact, verses 2 through 5, if you're looking at it, I think it's up on the screen, you've got nothing but questions. Just one after the other, questions. And the thing to note about these questions is that they're all rhetorical questions, which means they're not the kinds of questions that you're really supposed to answer, right? They're questions, but at bottom, they're, they're comments, like Paul is asking questions, but he's saying something with these questions. Now, notice how he, he starts out in verse 2. And I don't know what this says about me, but I find this very comical. This, this kind of just makes me chuckle to myself a little bit. He, he says this, let me ask you only this. And then he proceeds to ask them five questions. Okay? Like kids in the room. You guys know about this. Like your, your, our parents are really good at doing this kind of thing. If, if you ever hear the statement, I've, I've got just one question for you, just like strap in, man, you're going to be there for a while. This is what's going on with them. This is what's going on with Paul. However, look closer. Look at it, what's going on here is there are five questions here, but not really. They're all very similar to one another. It's almost as if, like, you know, it's the same question that is just being repackaged by Paul five times. Verses two and three sum them up pretty well. He says, Let me ask you only this Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So, same question, really. So, what's he getting at here? Well, for one thing, it's a multiple-choice question. Um, and I don't like multiple-choice. I'll take an essay over multiple-choice any day. But, it's, but here's the thing. He gives them two options. So it's a 50-50. So there's really good odds here. Okay, not bad. But before we, we get to our options, let's consider this question. Did you receive the Spirit this way? Or did you receive the Spirit 
that way. So we should ask the question, like, what does it mean to receive the Spirit? Well, I believe that he means this quite literally. I don't think he's being figurative. You know, when we're received by God, what we get is God. This is not all that different from other relationships. When someone receives you, you get them. And vice versa, you get their friendship, you get their company, you get their love, you get their concern. When we're received by God, we get God. We get his spirit dwelling within us, abiding within us, directing us, caring for us. And the question that Paul is asking is, if that happened to you, how did that happen to you? By works of the law? By perfecting yourself in your own flesh, according to your own strength, by your own performance, through your impressiveness? Is this how it happened? Or did it come to you by hearing with faith? Which is it? And I like to think of this as is, uh, almost, these two options, is almost like two different lines that we might stand in. I, think of it, I like to think of it that way because if you go back to the previous chapter, um, you hear of the Apostle Paul confronting the Apostle Peter and essentially saying, Peter, you're out of line with the gospel. You know, you're out of alignment. I mean, we use this phrase like, you're out of line, man. Peter was out of line. And right here, the point that I believe Paul is making with these rhetorical questions is, hey guys, please, just think through this with me. You were working hard in the law line, you were trying to perform for God, to appease God, to acquire his pleasure, to have his smile upon your life, to secure the blessing, but you were pulling a Fred Flintstone. You guys, anybody remember? <laughs> Fred in his car, you know, like your feet were moving, but you weren't going anywhere. And then a new line appeared that was from God, the gospel line, a pathway to God that was paved by God, with the blood of the Son of God. And in that line, you found everything. Everything was there, guys. Have you forgotten? Are you so foolish? It provided you with everything you would ever need. Blessing upon blessing. Forgiveness of sins. Reconciliation. The smile of God upon your lives, the real, lasting, perfect peace of God with you, the potential of all of that spilling out, flooding over into your lives. You had all of that freely, without cost. But you've gone back. Are you that foolish? Has someone bewitched you guys? that you think that you need to return to that other line in order to continue. That's essentially what he said, right? I mean, he says, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And so let me just ask this question of us at this point, if I could, if I could direct this towards us. If you would call yourself a Christian this morning, why is it that when you have sinned somehow, when I've sinned somehow, and we feel the weight of that, the weight of the guilt, the shame on our back. Why is it that we immediately feel inclined to somehow work our way back into the good graces of God? And if I could say that differently, why do we feel that we need to atone 
for our sin, because that's what we're doing, is though we could, when in fact we can't. And this is why Paul is calling them foolish. He's saying, if that's what you really think, guys, if that's what you really think, you, that you need to fix things, if you need to fix your mess by doing something, you know, performing in some kind of way, adopting some kind of new practice, taking yourself out to the woodshed, beating yourself up for a couple of days a week, doing spiritual push-ups, whatever it is, acting in some way that you think will somehow appease God, if that's what you think, then the gospel has slipped through your greasy little fingers. You've lost hold of it. You're out of alignment with it. Because what we're suggesting when we, we function in these kinds of ways is that we're, we're suggesting that the sacrifice of Christ wasn't enough, that it was insufficient to fully meet our need, that it, it holds the power to save us somehow, but that it doesn't hold the power to change us. That it holds the power to restore us to God, but that it's powerless is in our ongoing experience of restoration. That you know, we're believing that it's the thing that gets us in the door, but that it somehow doesn't possess the power to keep us in the house. That power, we foolishly think, must come from us. And Paul says to that, you're a fool if you believe that. Somebody's put a spell on you. And he's saying, this is the only line. It has everything you need for life and godliness. It's the line that you begin in. It's the line you continue in. It's the line that you finish in. And we just struggle to hold on to this. I know I do. I want to perform, man. I want to be impressive. I want to be impressive right here and right now. I want you guys to think I'm pretty, you know, like I'm some, this guy, man, Doug, he's something else. I'm being serious. I could cry about it. Getting into our last point here. The thing that we need to see, and this point is called the foolishness of the gospel, the thing that we need to see is that the gospel operates according to a pattern that is not of this world. This is why we struggle to believe it. This is why we struggle to hold on to it. Here's how we tend to think and operate. Tell me if this checks out with you. If someone says to us, you know, hey, I want you to move in with me, you know, pack up your things, come in, free of charge, I'll take care of everything, mi casa, su casa, I got you, we're going to throw in together shared life, and it's like, sounds too good to be true, like perfect situation, right? So we move in, and then what do we do? What do we do? We, we immediately, we begin to earn our keep, Right? And this makes sense. I'm not arguing with this. We immediately begin to earn our keep. We don't want to be freeloaders. We don't want to burden anyone. We, like, we don't want the people who so graciously invited us to come in to, to, to like, think, oh man, like, that was a bad idea. I don't know what I was thinking back there. This, I mean, this kind of thinking to us, this is just, yeah, this is what you do. This is wisdom to us, right? Anything less would be foolishness in our minds. Um, however, this, this, like, that's not the pattern of the gospel. Like, we're, we're in a different house in the gospel. And there's one primary reason why. There's, there's, why is it different? What's different about it? This, is, this may sound offensive at first, but just hold tight. The, the, here's why. It's because God doesn't need you. 
Like God, you know, God is not like seeing like dust bunnies collect around the house and is just like, man, I gotta get, I gotta get somebody in here, you know? Like, come on in. He doesn't need you. And that's good news. Because that can only mean one thing. It means that he wants you. He doesn't need you. He wants you. God's no fool. You understand? Like this, like, man, I gotta, I gotta, prove, I gotta prove to him that he didn't make a bad decision. God's no fool. Listen to this, this uh, quote from G.I. Packer. This is so good. Nobody can produce new evidence of your depravity, <laughs> of your sinfulness, that will make God change his mind. For God justified you with, so to speak, his eyes open. He knew the worst about you at the time that he accepted you for Jesus' sake. He knew the worst about you when he let you through the front door. He knew exactly what he was getting into with you. He's no fool. And then he ends, he ends by saying, it, it, he, and the verdict which he passed then was and is final. Right? Like, here's the house key. Done. Dunzo. I know that I'm going a little bit long here, but if I could just share like one more illustration to just try to like beat this into our heads a little bit more. Um, the way that I often think about this, the way that I often try to describe this is, is uh, I'll talk about my wife, Leah. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, if you, this, is, this is a theoretical, but like if you could imagine, we've been married for 18 years, that you know, we're about to, to step up to the altar and she pulls me aside in you know, a small room somewhere and, and she says, hey, Doug, check it out. I, there's some, before we step up, you know, to make this commitment together, I just need, there's something I need you to know. Um, I need you to meet certain expectations. I've just got these things that I just, they really need to happen, Doug. You know, like, I, I need you, I need you to be trustworthy. I need you to be, you know, faithful. I need you to take the garbage out at least once a week, you know, like, I, I, the dogs, that's got to be your thing, Doug. Like, you got to take care of, you know. Uh, if, if, is, are we good? We good? Okay, let's go. So she, that's, that's one thing, right? Or here's another thing. She, she, she could pull me aside and she could say, hey, Doug, listen, there's something I need you to know before we step up to this altar. I need you to know that I know that you're going to disappoint me. I need you to know that there are things that you're going to say to me that are going to hurt me. I need you to know that I know that you're not going to fulfill my every longing and wish and desire. But I'm, I'm with you, guy. I'm for you. I'm ready, to, I'm ready to make this commitment with you. Let's go. We could get up there, same vows, same experience, same song, same flowers, same meal, two totally radically different messages, two radically different ways, modes of seeing what this relationship is, how it works, how I should respond to it, radically different. Listen to this quote from Brian Chapel. This is good. He says, the grace of the gospel stirs the chemistry of the heart igniting a love for God that is our most compelling power for devotion 
in transformation. This kind of experience, locked in, in the house, given the house key, this should actually like, produce something radical in us so that I'm like, shoot, I'm taking the garbage out twice a week. For this lady, I struck gold here. You kidding me? I'm going to work harder because I'm not on the treadmill with her. Her love ain't going anywhere. I don't have to stay up late at night wondering if she's going to leave me. This is, this is what happened to Paul. So this is not, like if this sounds like grease monkey grace, that's not what I'm talking about. This is costly grace that changes us. Listen to how it changed Paul. I have been crucified with Christ, he says. I'm all in on this love, Paul says. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And listen for this. Please listen to this. Paul, Paul has been speaking to them and in this moment he gets personal. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. Paul says. He loved me. He loved me and gave himself for me, and this changes everything. Just a few, few more thoughts. I keep, this is what preachers say, right? We're working so hard, guys, to keep all the things in our lives in order, to keep things safe. We think that we're holding on to him but in reality, he's holding on to us. This is the big point here. How many things in your life can you really hold on to? How many things do you actually have control of? Don't be foolish. I'm sorry, but don't be a fool. You're a grease monkey. But if he's holding on to us, though, that changes everything. Back to my core value, Jesus changes everything. Amen? Please pray with me. Oh, Father, we pray that you would just massage this reality into our hearts and minds. We're just so stubborn, we're so thick headed. But oh, how we need this message to just keep coming back like waves of the ocean, just wave upon wave. We pray that you would keep them coming. God, I pray for myself and for my friends here that the reality, this good and gracious, merciful message of the gospel of your son, that it would begin to change the interior of our house that it would change the ways that we see ourselves and others, that it would change the way that we respond to you, even to our sin. Be at work, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.